One of the important facets of becoming Christian, of, of coming in to the church, is that it entails, or at least it should entail, a new community, a healed community, a united community, a whole community, a community of people who know to whom they belong. It's a community that shows forth, in some sense, reconciled relationships, newness, divisions ceasing to divide, but rather a newfound unity in the body of Christ. But community like this is a big challenge. It takes loads of work because it does not come naturally, and it never has. I want to think back to the beginning, the, the first century church gathered out of society, societies that were ripped by all kinds of division. It was just carved up, and some of this is going to sound familiar. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were different religious distinctions. There were all kinds of different cultural distinctions, ethnic distinctions, social class distinctions, and there were clear distinctions between the sexes, and these differences mattered a lot. And into that world comes Jesus, and he doesn't privilege any one group. He comes to all the people of the earth, and he calls them into a different kingdom, his kingdom. That's the whole point of epiphany, is calling all the peoples of the earth. And so the poor respond to Jesus. Women respond to Jesus. Slaves respond to Jesus. And Gentiles respond to Jesus. So you have thrown into this new community, something people had never seen before, a mixture of people who for all of their lives, <coughs> up until that moment, have known nothing but division. So you can imagine the kind of challenge it would be just learning to get along, learning to respect one another, learning to love one another. An illustration of this might be marriage. When you first enter into a relationship with somebody, you're carried along by your love for them and your interest in them, and it's beautiful and, and um, exciting, and there's a sense of exuberance. And on the wedding day, you see the beauty of that for everyone to see. There's the bride, like, in all her radiance, and there's the groom decked out and looking way better than he usually does. And they, they are ebullient, and, and it looks like love would be an easy thing, that it, would carry, that it would carry them beyond that moment, that, you know, you could just kind of make it. But the reality is that soon after you enter into marriage, you discover the depth of difference, that you really aren't as alike as you previously thought that your bride doesn't have this radiant beauty and joy about her every day of her life. And that the groom isn't nearly as handsome, good-smelling, and deferential as he seemed to be on that very first day. And reality sets in different opinions, different tastes, different habits of being, different understandings of freedom or the loss of freedom that you begin to experience 
And the real challenge in marriage becomes, how do you treasure someone so different from yourself? How do you move toward them consistently in community? How do you establish and enjoy genuine unity in a marriage? See, the community of the church is a bit like that because we are a diverse group of people and have been commonly drawn to Jesus, and we are distinct, vastly different from one another. How do we live with our differences? How do we dwell together in unity, as it says in Psalm 133.1? How do we transcend our differences in a way that celebrates them and we actually learn from one another? And we treasure one another. That was the challenge of the church in Paul's day, and it's our challenge today. And segregation is not an option. For the Apostle Paul, it wasn't an option that this new formed community in Jesus Christ would divide up that they would carve up the spiritual realm into Jewish congregations and, and Gentile congregations. In fact, Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians because Peter was beginning to live by the pattern of the world. When the Jewish Christian leaders would show up from Jerusalem, Peter would withdraw from eating meals with the Gentiles and beginning to live once again by the identifying marks and characteristics of Jewish culture. And Paul rebukes him, and he should have. He rebukes him because Jesus Christ has torn down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And it's in the cross of Jesus Christ that two separate groups have now become one and must learn to live in genuine communion. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that these categories cease to exist. Because they absolutely do still exist. But that this diversity of people that come to know Jesus, while they remain distinct in numerous ways, and retain those differences, somehow in Jesus Christ, as in marriage, become one. The Corinthian church really struggled with that oneness. And they kept letting the quote-unquote wisdom of their prevailing culture infiltrate their midst and shape them in the way that they thought about one another. And so the church was just rife with division. There were divisions over the kind of meat you could eat. There were some who had very sensitive consciences about purchasing the meat that was sold in the marketplace if it had been sacrificed to an idol. It offended their conscience because they felt like it polluted them. And there were some for whom this was not a problem at all. And Paul said it really didn't matter to him. The problem was that the latter group was running roughshod over the members of the fellowship with sensitive consciences and it was creating division. There were some who were tolerating this kind of rank sexual immorality. There were some who were super loyal to Paul, and some who insisted Apollos was the man. Now, um, 
you know, they were fighting over that. We are just so glad here that if you like Steve, <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> don't use that last name. No. There was just a lack of love. There were vastly different ideas about what a truly spiritual person was, as we see in this chapter we read today. And it was separating people and leading to destruction in the community. It was weakening and not strengthening the body, tearing it down and not building it up. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul seeks to address this problem and call them to something greater. And in verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the things that come from the Spirit. Now, he's speaking generally about spirituality here, things that come from the Spirit. And it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because the Corinthians thought they knew. In fact, if you want to go back and read some serious sarcasm and snark, go back and read 1 Corinthians 4, where he's calling them to task on what they thought they knew. They thought they had a grip on what it meant to be spiritual, that they understood it, that they knew better, for example, which gifts of the spirits, spirit were the best ones, which the ones that everyone wanted to have. They knew, quote unquote, what spiritual progress looked like. But what they really knew was how to carve up their community. Paul says, I don't want you to continue in your ignorance. And then he begins to unpack and unfold a vision for a healthy and robust spiritual life and church. And he shows us three things about it in chapter 12, at least three things. First of all, that a healthy and robust spiritual community is a community that's centered on just one thing, just one thing, a confession. Everything that follows flows from that. He shows us in a second place that a healthy spiritual community is a diversity. We just heard that this morning. And he shows us thirdly that a healthy spiritual community is a unity. There are, of course, other critical attributes of a healthy spiritual community. Genuine love, for example, which he dedicates all of chapter 13 to. But what he begins with is a confession. The one thing this all flows from. Now, I had, when Steve and I were kind of negotiating on preaching um, what Sundays we were going to take, uh, I preached from Psalm 84 two Sundays ago. He preached from Psalm 96. And I actually called him last week, and I actually called him and said, hey, are you still planning to preach from the Psalm? Because I think I want to take on all of 1 Corinthians 12. And then I started studying it and realized there was no way in the world. Um, so we are not going to get past verse 3 uh, today. The, there's probably about 10 sermons, literally, in that chapter. So Paul begins with a confession. Whenever we begin to talk about spirituality or we, we think about our own spirituality, I bet we don't run immediately to the subject of creedal confession. We likely think about a variety of experiences that we've thought of as being quote-unquote spiritual, or maybe we think about a time in worship when we felt particularly close to Christ, or maybe we think about people we sort of perceive as having a kind of insider relationship with Jesus, and that's what the Corinthians thought too, but Paul begins his discussion of spirituality with none of those things. 
he begins with confession or the creed. In this case, it was the earliest creed of the church. Jesus is Lord. And for the Corinthians, it was a costly confession. You know, we think if we start swimming against the prevailing culture today, we risk being canceled, right? We live kind of in a cancel culture. Now, if the Corinthians swam against the prevailing culture, they were literally canceled. That's why they invented crucifixion. So for them to say Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord could cost them their lives. This is why Paul, if it doesn't make sense to you in this verse, he says, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Spirit. Now, that obviously, you could walk up to somebody and say, I'll pay 20 bucks if you say Jesus is Lord, but that's not by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a particular thing there. Paul says the very center of anyone's understanding of spirit of the spiritual is a confession about Jesus Christ, that he is Lord. But to say that Jesus is Lord isn't simply to call to mind certain facts about Jesus, that he's the risen and exalted king. I mean, it is, it is to call those things to mind, but it's more than that. One commentator points out that confession includes, on the one hand, affirmation or belief about the status of Jesus, but more than that, it's relational. In other words, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to insert yourself into the confession. He's my Lord. And so the person who's growing in their spirituality is a person that's growing in their apprehension of the lordship of Jesus Christ, growing in their ability and willingness to bring more and more of life individually and communally before him and under him. With God as our help to put, as it says in the Eucharistic prayer that we pray every Sunday, all things in subjection under his Christ. Before anything else, we want his input. We want to hear his thoughts. We want to know what he thinks about things. And we begin to live our lives under his authority, even when it's sometimes painful. Even though it means a kind of self-denial that hurts. Even though it means having difficult conversations about our practices sometimes. Even though it pits us against the accepted wisdom of our our prevailing culture. That kind of confession in our lives, even in our churches, is an anomaly today. It doesn't fit in any way with where our culture is. Because ours is a culture that centers all notions of authority on the self. It's on me. Philip Reef, a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania and not a Christian, wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, in which he discusses the modern therapeutic mindset and says it's dominated by the idea that men and women need not submit to any power, higher or lower than their own. From a Christian perspective, historian Carl Truman echoes and expounds on this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In fact, 
the one thing that all social, social commentators agree on is that the, as they study the cultures of the West is that they see, is, is that what they see is that there's been an almost complete relocation of authority in our culture. That instead of authority that's located outside of the self, something that's transcendent, it's located inside of us, inside of me. It's about my choice, my evaluation, my discernment of need. And if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that the relocation of authority from transcendence to self has not produced unity and healing and wholeness. In fact, it's produced exactly the opposite. In the United States alone, we have over 330 million authorities. Ours has become a culture that's characterized by more anxiety about identity than ever before. And it has a growing anxiety about identity, an obsession with self-esteem, and at the same time, a loss of self-esteem. This is one of the reasons why we have inserted the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism into our prayers of the people every Sunday. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That reading from the book of Nehemiah today is so profoundly powerful because it is a people that had moved away from God and been carried off into exile, and they were hearing the law again. God was telling them, this is who you are. This is who you are, because they had lost their sense of identity. Culturally, we're obsessed with ourselves, our comfort, our autonomy, our authority, and it just, it hasn't, gotten us very far, and we mostly don't even think about it, really. We don't give much critical thought to it at all. It's like the story uh, of the two fish uh, swimming one sunny, sunny morning, and they pass a, an older fish coming the opposite direction, and he says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the one fish looks at the other and goes, water? What the heck's water? It's just what we're swimming in all the time, not even aware of it. In his 1983 Templeton Prize address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered a summary explanation for why all the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass. But I think it's, it, it, it has incredible purchase in our current cultural moment as well. This is what he said. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Today's world has reached a state which, if it had been described to preceding generations, would have called forth the cry, this is the apocalypse. Yet we have grown used to this kind of world and even feel at home in it. Even Christians. And Paul would show the Corinthians, and he shows us here, that there's a kind of confession that leads us away from unity, away from wholeness, away from healing. It's a confession that's not centered in Jesus' lordship, but puts something else at the center of your life. 
Paul reminds the Corinthians there was this time when that was true of you. You were like the pagans and you were carried away to worship mute idols. But now you've, you've come to the true king and you've confessed that he is Lord. The spiritual person is a person who stopped one kind of confession and has come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and confessed him. And so they're tasting healing in their life. They're, they're bringing their lives into submission under his authority, and they're growing under his authority. So how do you move from a place of confess to a place of confessing? Jesus is our Lord. He's my Lord. There's this, this great scene in the Lord of the Rings trilogy at the end of the first movie, Fellowship of the Ring, which, by the way, um, true story, uh, I was with the boys in the theater. Uh, we were in about the fourth row on the day that it premiered, and a woman was in the first row who obviously did not understand that it was a trilogy. And at the end of the first movie, stood up and said loud enough for everyone to hear, that is the worst ending to a movie I've ever seen. <laughs> as the rest of us are weeping. <laughs> but there's this scene, it's gripping, at the very end of the film where Boromir is dying. And in his dying moment, as Aragorn hovers over him in an embracing way, Boromir confesses his failure. He looks into his life and says, I'm flawed, there's, there's a failure in me. I wanted the ring and I tried to take it. We've followed Boromir through the movie, and we've known that he lacked courage. We, we've known that he wasn't the leader the community needed and that there was a deep flaw of self in his character. And in his dying moment, he's acknowledging that flaw. But more than that, there's the final moment of his life where he confesses to Aragorn, I would have followed you to the very end. My brother my captain, my king. And you know in that moment that some kind of healing has taken place. And even though he's dying, there's a wholeness and unity that wasn't there before. That there's a newness in him. And it stirs us. It's a beautiful moment and just an incredibly noble moment because we've followed his life and we've seen the flaw and now it's gone because he's confessed the true king. Christianity is the same way. Dorothy Sayers calls sin a deep interior dislocation of the heart. In other words, beneath all the surface sins, all, all the sins we readily recognize as sins, beneath our tendency to gossip, our tendency to compare ourselves, our insecurities, beneath our lying, beneath all sexual immorality, beneath all the things we can readily put our fingers on as sinful is a deeper flaw. And the deeper flaw is precisely this, that we resist the true king. And we're not healed and we're not whole. And we are just profoundly unhappy and even though we're trying to fill up our lives with all kinds of things, it is not helping. We are disconnected, disintegrated, and diseased. 
because we're not dealing with the real flaw, and the real flaw is in us. The, the deeper interior dislocation is our failure to confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and by faith submit ourselves to him as such. It's our tendency to give ourselves to other lords, lesser lords, lesser kings, and there are millions of them out there. And so the flaw perpetuates, the brokenness grows, the disintegration continues. How do we begin to deal with that flaw? We behold the true king. And we begin to see the nobility of our king, the holiness of our king, the wisdom of our king, and the love of our king, who, as he looks upon a people who are in so many ways utterly unworthy, and even in our most unlovely moments, he loves us still. And even though he is king, he lays down his life so that we can have healing and so that we can be whole. Today, as we come to the Lord's table, Behold him. See the extent of his love. See the shape that his kingship takes. He's the king that although he possesses infinite status and grandeur, although he is rich beyond measure, willingly became poor for our sakes so that in him we might become rich. Behold him. Confess him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.